Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called the people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. Good morning, Renew Church. And I also want to say hello to all of you who may have dropped in or just checking us out. I especially want to say hello to my colleagues who I invited to join us. Uh, Some of them are local, but some of them are far away, like from Japan. Today, uh, we're going to continue in this series and look into the life of Jacob. We're going to learn from one of our spiritual forefathers. We're going to try to understand his calling, and more importantly, his character development. And as we look into the life of Joseph, I pray that we can apply some of these lessons to our own life journeys. Specifically, we're going to time travel and embark on a journey of trust, the kind of trust that leads to surrender. Now you may say, hmm, is surrender such a great goal? Well, it's surrendering to God, which ultimately leads to intimacy with God and power. So let's get started. The verse is in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be reading from verses 22 to 32. Starting at verse 22. The same night, he, meaning Joseph, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Jacob was being uh, chased, so he took them and sent them away across the stream and everything else that he had, and he sent them off first. And Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Verse 26, Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, 
limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's first start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that I could be here, even virtually with my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the life of Jacob, so rich uh, of a heritage. And today, may your Holy Spirit take us back in time that we may travel the journey that J Jacob traveled, the journey of trust, the, tr the journey of obedience, the journey of surrender. And may we likewise also understand the meaning of surrender and how that ultimately is for our good and that it would lead to an intimacy with you and an empowerment that we all long for. So bless my brothers and sisters and all who listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, there's a bunch of background and context I think we need to go over. Um, Wilson talked about the fact that we, as Christians, are in the lineage of Jesus. So that means Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, lead up to the genealogy of Christ, and from Christ to us. So this is really us looking at our family tree. So it starts by God calling the man Abraham, who is considered the father of both Christianity and Judaism. Abraham marries Sarah. Isaac is their son. Isaac then marries Rebekah. And Rebekah and Isaac have twins, Jacob, who later is called Israel, and then Esau. Jacob then uh, has 12 children, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the tribes, the tribe of Judah, is the generation lineage uh, and eventually the birth of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a deep dive now into looking at the life of Jacob. Now, both Esau and Jacob started out as miracle babies. Now, here in Genesis 25, verse 21, it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, what was unusual is that the children within the womb struggled within her, and she said, what's going on? What's, what's happening? And so she also inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This was Jacob's calling. God had a plan and a purpose for his life, and, and it even began way before his birth. Ultimately, it was his calling to lead the great nation of Israel. Well, how about you and I? I would venture to guess that you, at some point in your life, have also experienced a sense of calling from God. It may or may not have been dramatic. It may have been a simple aha moment where you finally realize that perhaps God really does have a purpose for me and a plan for me, that I was not created in a random fashion, 
uh, but there's a meaning and purpose to my life. I know throughout my life, God has called me in different times, different seasons, and for different purposes. But ultimately, what I've learned is that the greatest calling that God has on us for, uh, for, for our lives is that He calls us to Himself. That's the foremost and most important calling. God calls us, each one of us, to Himself. Now, before Jacob could fulfill his calling, he needed to develop his character. You see, his character mm, didn't start out so great. The word Jacob actually means to supplant and take over, to circumvent, assail, overreach. Literally, it means heel grabber. Because when the twins were in the womb, first one out would be firstborn. And Jacob, seeing Esau going for the door, <laughs> reached out and grabbed his heel trying to pull him back so that he could be first out. Unfortunately, Esau made it out first, and he was the firstborn. But the term heel grabber stuck because Jacob tried to grab Esau as he was leaving the mom's womb. Now Esau later spins Jacob's name to imply deceiver. And basically he said, hey, you Jacob me, you deceived me. And this was in Genesis 27. So Esau was indeed technically the firstborn of the twins, maybe separated by mere minutes. And Esau and Jacob, although twins, were very, very different. The name Esau means red and ruddy, and he was hairy. The Bible says he was hairy. How hairy does that mean? Uh, quite hairy, I think, if the Bible mentions that. Uh, he was a hunter. He was a man's man. He was an outdoors guy. And because of that, uh, he was dad's favorite. Dad loved it when Esau would go out into the field, catch him some game, uh, cook some venison, and make him venison stew. Jacob, on the other hand, was quite different. He was quiet. He was an indoors guy. He was uh, smooth skinned. And essentially, he was mama's boy. So Esau, being the firstborn, had some privileges. Uh, much more than firstborns uh, today. Uh, the firstborn back then had uh, certain rights and privileges. Firstly, the firstborn would have a double portion of the father's inheritance. Secondly, the firstborn would become the spiritual leader of the family. And thirdly, the firstborn would have judicial authority over, the fa over family matters. So anything that came up, uh, he would be the one to adjudicate any conflicts within the family. So that's a, a lot of power given to the firstborn. Well, one day, Esau, returning famished from the fields, begged Jacob to give him some of his amazing lentil stew that Jacob had just prepared. Well, Jacob said, well, sure, uh, you want my soup? No problem. I'll exchange my soup for your birthright. Now, what kind of deal is that? And what kind of sucker would take that deal? But the Bible tells us that Esau agreed and traded his birthright for this bowl of lentil soup. Now, before we judge Esau too harshly, we can, I think, identify that, that uh, when we're extremely exhausted and tired, 
And when we're hangry, uh, we may not make the best decisions. And so Esau made perhaps one of the dumbest decisions in history and traded off his birthright. But the birthright was only part A of the deal. There was also a part B, and that was the blessing. The blessing was a ceremonial prayer of blessing, almost like reading your last will and testament before you pass away. And Isaac was planning on blessing Esau before he died. But Rebekah begged to differ and schemed to have Jacob deceive his father into thinking that Jacob was actually Esau, taking advantage of Isaac's poor vision. So as the day ensues, Isaac instructs Esau, hey, go out there, you know, kill some game, make me some of your fantastic venison stew, and then come back home and I will give you the blessing. Rebecca, who overheard this conversation, said, aha, okay, I am going to go to the kitchen, I'm going to make the same meal, and I'm going to send Jacob in with the food, uh, and in order for Jacob uh, to uh, be able to become a more realistic Esau, Rebecca had Jacob put goat skins on his arms and his shoulders so that Isaac, when touching Jacob, would actually think that this is the more hairy, older brother Esau. So that was the plan, and it was executed, and indeed, Isaac wound up blessing Jacob with the blessing that he thought he was blessing Esau with. And so both part A and part B of that birthright inheritance uh, was completed, and Jacob and Rebekah prevailed in this uh, plot, uh, this cons conspiracy plot and mission was accomplished. Now, I know this, uh, this story always kind of goes down as, oh, weren't they awful people? They were so uh, deceptive and so on. Now, there is some nuance here in that God indeed did tell Rebecca, you know, that Jacob would prevail, uh, that he would be the stronger, and that Esau would be serving Jacob. And I'm sure that Rebecca, hearing the news from God, would have told her husband Isaac. And she probably also told her son Jacob. Well, whether they told Esau or not, hard to know. Uh, but certainly Isaac would have known and Jacob would have known. And so as time passed, they're not seeing much action. They're, they're, how is this all going to play out? Uh, so this is certainly God's will. And so Rebecca and Jacob were merely helping God uh, fix the problem, fix the situation, and took action on their own. And I think if anything, uh, this is where they failed. Uh, they didn't trust God's promise that God would, would deliver in God's timing and decided they needed to take matters into their own hands and so devised their own deceptive ways. The only problem? Esau. He was livid. He vowed to kill Jacob. As soon as Isaac passed, he would be knifed to the throat uh, to kill Jacob. So what does mom do? Like any good mom, tells her son Jacob, honey, run for your life. So Jacob runs. And the furthest place he could run, where there's family members, was way out in modern-day Turkey. It was a 400-mile journey uh, to get from Canaan 
to his uncle Laban, who was in Haran at that time. So he packs up his stuff, and tail between his legs, he goes off on a long journey to escape the wrath of his brother and try to see if he can find safety in his uncle's home in Haran. Now, en route, God gives Jacob a revelation, a much-needed touch from the Lord. And in the passage in Genesis 28, it, it says that uh, when uh, Jacob rested, God appeared to him in a dream, and this is the Jacob's ladder. Uh, there was a ladder set on earth, and it reached to, to heaven, and angels of God were seen to ascend and de descend on it, and the Lord stood at the top of the ladder, and he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your, Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall, be, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow. When, when Jacob really needed it, God affirms him. He affirms his calling. And he promises to be with him every step of the way. Well, dial forward. Uh, Jacob makes it to Laban. Uncle Laban accepts him to do work, uh, kind of work for keeps. Uh, now, Laban has two daughters. Uh, their names are Leah and Rachel. Leah is the older, Rachel is the second. The, word, the name Leah uh, means weak-eyed. So we're not sure if Leah had an eye problem, uh, an ophthalmia, or the Bible was P being somewhat PC and maybe Leah wasn't that attractive to look at. Uh, Rachel, however, the Bible says was beautiful. And so Jacob falls in love with Rachel, the second daughter. And here's where the trickster gets tricked. Um, he makes a deal with Uncle Laban that he would work for seven years in order to marry Rachel, and that's agreed upon. So after seven years of hard labor and work for Uncle Laban, finally they're married. Um, and uh, on the wedding night, um, Jacob discovered that the woman he slept with was not Rachel. It was Leah. I'm not sure how you can get them confused like that, but I'll let your imagination figure that out. Uh, so anyway, he has, to go to, <laughs> he has to go to Laban a second time, say, hey, what up? You know, I worked for, for uh, Rachel and you gave me Le Leah. And Uncle Laban said, well, you know, um, Leah's firstborn, so she had to go first. Rachel's still available, but, you know, you just have to work another seven years. So, uh, so Jacob agreed to work another seven years, and then the Bible says those seven years felt like a few days. He was so in love, so infatuated that it went by quickly. But actually, it was 20 years of hard work uh, that finally, at this point, uh, Jacob, he's got a large family, two wives, 12 sons, a daughter, livestock, and so on. But there was still family stuff going on, conflict dynamics. And finally, Jacob uh, confers with his wives that we can't take it anymore. It's time to leave. 
and they flee from Laban, kind of in the middle of the night, one of those scenes. And now we see um, Jacob fleeing once again. Now, have you ever been in a situation where the only solution is to run away? Like, how do you make that final decision that, okay, it's time to run? How do you know that what you're running to isn't actually worse that, than what you're running from? And, and so as this family caravan is approaching their hometown, Jacob sends messengers first out to visit with Esau, bearing gifts, of course, to let him know, hey, your brother's coming home, and to try to get a read on the reaction of Esau. So the messengers come back to Jacob saying, well, we have some good news and we have some bad news. The good news, Esau received the message and he's coming out to greet you. The bad news, um, he's bringing about 400 men with him. So that's quite a large <laughs> welcome party. Uh, not sure if they're all you know, uh, uh, bringing uh, uh, flyers and, and, and party favors with them. Um, and so obviously Jacob is assuming the worst, that 400 men probably armed are coming to take his life. So talk about an anxious moment, right? You know, you've just escaped a really bad situation and you're trying to head to safety, your own home. And first you need to face your live an angry brother who is coming out to kill you and there's nowhere to turn. You can't go back to Laban. He wants to kill you as well. Uh, so forward or back, you're kind of in a bad position. And I wonder if you can relate with this, this sense of no options, this sense of impending doom, you know, just around the corner. And it, it's not if, but when. Or perhaps there's something in your past uh, that is as monstrous as, as what uh, Jacob is facing. Maybe there's a, a strange family member that you have not reconciled with, or a friend that betrayed you, or a, a traumatic experience, and really all you've done is run away from it, or you've buried it deep for a long, long time. But perhaps now God is prompting you to face up to it, to deal with it, or better yet, to let him help you deal with it. And here Jacob says, no, I want to do this by myself. I want to handle this on my own. So he sends his family and all his possessions ahead of him so that he may face his threat by himself. But wait, is he really going to be by himself? As we read on, seemingly out of nowhere, a man comes and starts wrestling with him. Who, who was this? Is it Esau? Was it like, you know, a wrestler sent by Esau to take him down? Well, we soon discover it's none of these. It's actually God. Later in verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place that they wrestled Peniel, which means, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And biblical scholars uh, call this uh, interaction with God a Christophany, which really means they believe that it was Jesus who came to wrestle with Jacob. 
Now, in the, in the New Testament, obviously Jesus was alive and well, but after he died and resurrected, uh, later in the New Testament, Jesus would appear again. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He appeared to um, these disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. In the Old Testament, we also see Jesus appearing. In Genesis 18, uh, we heard last week that there were three visitors to Abraham and Sarah, and one of them was Jesus himself. In Exodus 33, it says, No one sees God face, face to face and lives. Uh, so the Old Testament sense that if you, if you could see God, you would, you would not live to tell about it because you would die. And so these appearances of God in the Old Testament uh, was likely these Christophanies where God in the form of Jesus was able to come and meet certain people in certain times. And so Jesus obviously can time travel uh, through Old and New Testament. It's kind of like uh, Stan Lee, you know, the, the author of, of the Marvel characters. And, you know, these are all his stories. And so he can pop in and out of any Marvel, you know, movie. So you go to a Marvel movie and Stan Lee's somewhere in the crowd or on the bus or somewhere. And so that, that's very much like Jesus. He can step in and out of the story that he, he wrote, past, present, and future. So at the peak of his fear and anxiety and pending doom, Jacob finds himself wrestling with God, wrestling with Jesus. So I can't imagine, what is Jacob thinking as he's wrestling? Is he thinking, mm, I, I need to win? I, I need to knock this dude down? Is that what he's thinking? And like, what is God thinking? Is God thinking, oh, this guy's pretty tough. I don't know if I can take him down. You know, God doesn't wrestle with you to prove his strength, but for you to admit your weakness. God doesn't want to have a match with Jacob. He wants to have a moment with Jacob. Jacob was finally alone with God. No distractions, no running, no conniving. One-on-one, -on -one, he was finally alone with God. And there's a commentator, C.H. McIntosh, who back in the late 1800s wrote, to be left alone with God is the only true way of arriving at a just knowledge of ourselves and our ways. No matter what we may think about ourselves or what others may think about us, the great question is, what does God think about us? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Is the, is the world caving in on you? Maybe it's time to get alone with God. In that time, you will find yourself and ultimately you will find God. So the story unfolds. Finally, you know, after wrestling through the night and into the morning, uh, Jacob, stubborn as he is, just won't give up. You know, God's been kind of playing around with him and letting him wrestle, but Jacob just stubborn and would not uh, relent and continued the wrestling match. Um, we knew who would obviously win. So what does God do? He touches his hip and pop. Game over. The struggling is done. Now, God could have ended it even before it got started. Obviously, Jacob was no match for God. But God wanted an encounter. 
But ultimately, it needed to end with full surrender on Jacob's part. Literally, there needed to be a breaking point, and God needed to supply the breaking point. God points a finger, and his hip is dislocated. Now, here's where the the nerdy medical side comes in. Uh, The hip is actually the largest joint in the body. It's the strongest joint in the body. There are two ligaments that hold the femur in its socket. And one of the ligaments, I just looked this up, can withstand 775 pounds of pressure. Uh, So that's a lot of pressure. And to imagine being able to pop the hip out of the socket would, would take tremendous force. And God just goes like this with his finger, and it pops out of socket. Uh, so obviously, uh, Jacob just needed uh, to have that uh, breaking point for him to surrender. And so it happens. His, his hip joint is, uh, is uh, dislocated. And now, if he tries to fight, every time he, he tries to anchor his legs to push uh, during wrestling, uh, it's, it's unstable, and it causes pain. So he cannot push off anymore. So the only thing he can do is just grab and hold on. He's, not, he's, in, he's essentially not wrestling anymore. He's just holding himself up. And so Jacob is now going from resisting to resting. He's going from conniving to clinging. He's going from wrestling to nestling. He's finally saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I trust you, and I just hold on to you, and I'm going to go for the ride. Your ride, not mine. So in a way, Jacob lost the wrestling match, but in fact, he won. He actually won. Why do I say that? Because what happens next is remarkable and extraordinary. Because after surrender comes intimacy. Jesus turns to Jacob and says and asks, What is your name? Now obviously Jesus knows his name, but he asks it for a special reason. Jacob, what is your name? Like, who are you? Who do you who do people say that you are? And what what has been your outward image of yourself that you're trying to portray to others, like what's your Facebook image, kind of? Uh, who do you believe you are? And why do you ask God? Because the person you believe you are is exactly what will determine the actions of the person. Your actions are completely dependent on who you believe yourself to be. And that is informed by who others believe you to be. That's informed by who your parents believe you to be. That's informed by who Satan tells you you are. And that uh, is a sad fact, but that is the absolute truth. We will act out of the person that we've been led to believe, even if it's the false person. So, in the place of solitude, silence, and surrender, we see more clearly the false person that we've been trying to become. And in that place of intimacy and safety, we need to admit and confess that that's what's been happening before God, and then He can transform us. 
We need to, the, we need to come to the place of surrender to say, no, I, I don't want to be a supplanter anymore. I don't want to be a deceiver anymore. I, I, I don't want to be the richest, the most powerful, the, the best looking, the most popular. I don't want those things. I want the person that you created me to be God. And that's what I want. And so God uh, does that for Jacob. He tells Jacob who he really is and who he created Jacob to be. And he tells us that the same way. Your name is no longer Jacob. You are no longer heel snatcher, supplanter, uh, deceiver. Your name, your new name is Israel. And there's uh, multiple uh, meanings for Israel. One who God commands. One who lets God rule. One who God contends for. One who triumphs with God, a prince with God. And that's who you are. You're my prince. Jesus is saying to Jacob, you're my prince. Much better than you are the deceiver. When we surrender to God, we don't lose. We actually win. We win God himself. And that is intimacy. Out of intimacy flows power. Because we have confidence in God's omnipotence, his sovereignty, his great love for us, that he causes all things to work for the good for those who love him. Romans 8.28. And so we walk out in power. Jacob gets up, goes out, meets Esau head on. And while he's doing that, God softens Esau's heart and he actually receives and embraces his estranged, estranged brother. This cycle is so interesting, and it's, it's kind of defined my life. The cycle of surrender leading to intimacy, leading to power. Then surrender again, leading to intimacy and power. And surrender again, leading to intimacy and power. The cycle continues as God refines us. So being the nerd that I am, I put this entire Jacob story into a single dia uh, diagram. Starts with uh, what's called a freeze period and a flashpoint. So a freeze period, uh, this is according to John Trent in his book Life Mapping. A freeze period is, is a period of time where, you know, life events wound you and debilitate uh, you and it seizes you up it's, and you stop risking, you stop dreaming, you stop maturing, you stop believing God for great things and you are paralyzed, you're frozen. So that's the freeze period. Flashpoint, much quicker, something that ignites the, the last straw that broke the camel's back, the pop that dislocated his hip. And at that point, you're done. You have no, nothing left but to surrender. So freeze periods can lead to and include a flashpoint, which then leads to surrender. Surrender to God always leads to intimacy. And from intimacy and healing and understanding our identity in Christ, then we are elevated and placed into position of power and influence. This is the cycle. So uh, I can give you two quick examples in my own life of the cycle. Uh, in my mid-20s, second year of medical school, my freeze point, struggling like many with what's the purpose of life. And I believe I was depressed. We didn't have words for depression back then, but I think I was depressed. And the flashpoint, a near-fatal car accident. And the surrender, well, the sermon next morning is like, your life is not your own, dude. You're created for a purpose. I want you to live it out. And you're living on borrowed time. 
And so stop looking for the easy way out. Live your life as I've planned you to live it. The intimacy, can you belong to me? You're mine, you're precious. Don't think of taking your own life. You are precious in my sight. And the power, well, I took a year out, I did medical missions, it changed my whole trajectory and, and everything that I thought about my future uh, was transformed uh, through that surrender, intimacy. Example two, dial forward 25 years later, I turned 50. Uh, the freeze period, again, struggling with the purpose of life. You, you visit that question a lot. Uh, maybe depressed, uh, maybe wanting more, not knowing what more there is at 50, struggling with ego perhaps. And then the flashpoint, uh, a tennis accident, two herniated discs, and a diagnosis of reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or RSD. The point of surrender, when, the, when, the, when my doctor said, hey, you know, I'm sorry to bear bad news, but you've got at most a 40% chance that you could ever walk. So here I am, uh, essentially in excruciating pain, writhing in bed, and told at best 40% chance that I could ever walk, never mind uh, go back and be, be a physician myself. So in those weeks and months of lying in bed, uh, I was forced into a time of intimacy. And that was the best time of my life when I look back at it. Because it was there during intimacy. And this picture that you see of Jesus holding on to this, uh, this man, uh, that, I had that picture posted uh, next to my bed on a little picture frame. And every waking moment, whether I was in pain or not, I would be looking at that picture. And I would feel Jesus' embrace. I, I would feel the wind coming from, from the valley. I, I could smell his fragrance. I could hear his voice uh, to that point that I was, uh, it felt so intimate. And it was there that his, his gentle, kind words would just soothe my soul. He would tell me that I was precious, that I belonged to him. Uh, he would say things like, you, you know, your eyes are mine. Uh, I want you to see the world as I see the world. Your hands, no matter what you do as you're healed and so on, uh, your hands don't belong to you. They're my hands, and you're going to minister with my hands. And your heart is mine. You will feel the compassion for people that I feel. And, and this time of intimacy was foundational for everything that would, to, that would follow. The power came with miraculous healing and recovery and everything that, that followed. Okay, so we want to, we, but we want to find out what happened to Jacob. How did that story end? So uh, Jacob's life, um, as he gets to the end of it, his life is converging. He's not wrestling anymore. We go to Hebrews 11. This is the Christian Hall of Fame where all our famous uh, forefathers and foremothers are mentioned. And it says, for Jacob, by faith, a dying Jacob leaned on his staff, blessed Joseph's sons, and worshipped God. What a beautiful picture. He leaned on his staff. The staff was the testimony of God. How God disciplined him, roped him in, and how God has held him up. That he, He's always leaning on the staff, maybe because of his hip. So the staff was the testimony of God's discipline and support. 
blessing? Well, remember, Jacob had to steal his blessings until finally when he wrestled God, he just asked for it and God gave it to him. From then on, he understood blessings come freely and as they freely came to him, he freely blessed others and we see him blessing his grandchildren. And finally, worship. So, so Jacob was known for worship. What does that mean? It, worship is the extremest form of love where we're so close and we're so intimate with God uh, that we're in that place of, of love uh, and being together with God, uh, being able to uh, adore Him and praise Him and, and, uh, and, and exude with gratitude for who He is and what He has done. And that's uh, Jacob, uh, that's his legacy to us. Uh, it took uh, a while for his character to develop to that point, uh, but what a wonderful journey of how that happened and how that progressed. So my brothers and sisters, I ask you, uh, where are, are you on this journey towards surrender to God? Are you finding yourself in a freeze point? Are you experiencing a flashpoint? And what would it take for you to finally lose in order to win? For some of you, you have never surrendered your life to God. Jesus comes to us today in our very own Christophany. He comes to you and asks, will you trust Him for the rest of your life into eternity? If so, I'd like you to uh, join with me in a brief prayer uh, to welcome Him into you. Uh, to your life, and to make Him your Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the life testimony of Jacob, but for many of my brothers and sisters out there, uh, they have come to the point of wanting to surrender, and now they wish to surrender to You. And so they, so Lord Jesus, um, I confess and I admit that I am a sinner, and I am lost, and I am without purpose without you. And I thank you that you died for me, that you took on the punishment of my sins upon the cross. And so with that, I accept this free gift of forgiveness and of salvation. From this day forward, I surrender. I want to live my life for you. I want to live the, the life that helps me to become the person that you've made me to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.